Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, in honor of National Novel Writing Month, I have a segment from Nev March, the author of Murder in Old Bombay, about how to name your characters with some great examples from Dickens. And then I have a segment about the difference between the words continuous and continual, with a memory trick to help you remember the difference. Let's get started. And again, this first segment is by Nev March. So when I say me or my, that's her. How do you choose their names? A young writer recently asked me, referring to the host of characters populating my historical novel, Murder in Old Bombay, just published by Minotaur Books. And that got me thinking about names. Names are powerful. They contain the seed of the character's personality, the time and place, their ancestry, and even how they see themselves. Recall Dickens' infamous character, Uriah Heep? Humble we are and humble we shall always be, he'd say, rubbing his hands. What a vivid impression of falsehood. We know he's pretending to modesty because both his body language and his very name elicit suspicion. Names are subtle signposts. In my current manuscript, I had named a character Blake Baldwin. He's an operative, a detective who's killed when he uncovered an anarchist plot. But something about his presence just didn't work until I realized the anachronism. Blake is a rather modern name, and my book is set in 1893. Renaming him Arnold Baldwin allowed him to fit into the scenes much better. Names also direct us to a character's ancestry and ethnicity. In Murder in Old Bombay, a young rascal called Birju, a Hindu name, was a pivotal minor character from a mountain village near Puthankot in northern India. Listeners may not know that in 1947, when British India was partitioned into India and Pakistan, border villages with predominantly Hindu populations remained with India, and those which had mostly Muslim populations were given over to Pakistan. Pathankot stayed in India. Now, here's the problem. In the 1890s, the period in which my book is set, Hindus and Muslims coexisted amicably in villages. So while I wanted to show Birju's family was Hindu, much of village life reflects a rural Muslim culture. However, when we sent out electronic copies of my book, an early reviewer complained that it was strange that Birju, a Hindu boy, came from such a village. Her perception had been colored by the present-day greater segregation of communities. Since I wanted to retain the quiet, understated nature of the Muslim village, I renamed my character Razak 
since the name Birju was jarring in the context of the Muslim village. I specifically did not want to change the village, adding temples and traditions to replace the Muslim ambiance, because I wanted a racial balance in the book, representing positive characters in all religions, all races, all cultures. To paint one group as villainous exacerbates pre-existing prejudices, and that should be contrary to a writer's role. And it's just plain lazy writing. Writers should be able to create multidimensional characters whose innate desires and beliefs engender admiration or distrust. Charles Dickens, regarded as the foremost Victorian writer, wrote 15 novels, five novellas, and hundreds of short stories. He often used names as code to signal a character's innate predisposition. Nicholas Nickleby, for example, the alliteration in his name creates a focus on wealth, and sure enough, he's trying to repair his father's depleted fortunes. It's an active name, a robust name for a young man, and certainly this Dickensian hero does much to oppose oppression against Madeline Bray, who he later marries, and poor Smike, Smike! Was there ever such a vivid name? He is struck and mistreated and abandoned for years before Nicholas arrives on scene. He travels with Nicholas and works in Crummel's stage troupe. Crummel's. Do you see how that is an unexploded bomb of a name? We all know Scrooge, whose name is now synonymous with miserliness. But what about Seth Pecksniff? The Charles Dickens page website shares this extract, quote, some people likened him to a direction post, which is always telling the way to a place and never goes there. So did his manner, which was soft and oily. In a word, even his plain black suit and state of widower and dangling double eyeglass all tended to the same purpose and cried aloud, Behold the moral pecksniff, unquote. Now, what about David Copperfield? What a sturdy, active name, a name to strive to be worthy of. And indeed, this lad's life is full of strife, yet he valiantly sets forth in search of happiness with the doomed Dora, daughter of Francis Splenlow, his employer. Dora sounds adorable. Here's David Copperfield speaking of her, quote, She was more than human to me. She was a fairy, a sylph. I don't know what she was. I was swallowed up in an abyss of love in an instant. There was no pausing on the brink, no looking down or looking back. I was gone, headlong, before I had a sense to say a word to her, unquote. Yet Dora is frail and messes up her housekeeping. She dies young of an unnamed illness. Copperfield, Spenlow, Pecksniff, Crummles, and Dora— these names don't hide behind a first impression. They dominate. Their sound, their thrust, describes their drama. For Murder in Old Bombay, I invented a detective called Captain James Egnahotri. His very name is a contradiction. James is the quintessential English name. While Agnihotri is not just Indian, but a Hindu Brahmin name, a name that belongs in temples. But Indians did not approve of mixing of races any more than the British, so Captain Jim faces discrimination wherever he goes. That's until he realizes his unique gift, to blend in, inside both worlds, society ballrooms and dusty villages, as he decides to channel his hero, Sherlock Holmes, and disguise himself. His name was carefully chosen with a view to my second book. In it, Captain James travels to America, 
On board, the officer in charge of the manifest mishears his name, entering it as James Agni Otray. What an opportunity for a sleuth to further reinvent himself, as many immigrants actually did. As Captain Jim's journey evolves, so does his name. Charles Dickens might even have approved. That segment was by Nev March, the author of Murder in Old Bombay and winner of the Minotaur Books Mystery Writers of America First Crime Novel Award. She teaches creative writing at Rutgers Osher Institute. Last week, I had to remind myself of the difference between the words continuously and continually when I was writing about the word chronic because it has the same root as the word crony. Is a chronic disease something that is with you continuously or continually? There is a difference, even though the two words come from the same root. Something that happens continuously happens all the time, nonstop. If a piece of electrical equipment in your house is making a nonstop buzzing sound and you can't find it, you can tell an electrician that something is continuously buzzing. On the other hand, something that happens regularly, but not all the time, happens continually. For example, if you have a smoke alarm that goes off at random times every day, when you tear it off the wall and throw it away, you can tell the person you hire to patch the drywall that the alarm was going off continually. Just be sure to replace it, because smoke alarms are important. So if you have a chronic disease, is it something that affects you continuously or continually? Well, maybe it's both. For example, many type 1 diabetics have to give themselves shots multiple times a day. They are continually giving themselves shots multiple times a day. But some diabetics use insulin pumps instead that deliver insulin all the time, although the amount can vary throughout the day. They are getting insulin continuously, nonstop. But I think the real answer is that because the underlying disease is always there, the disease is continuously with people. It's something that continuously affects them all the time. So now, how can you and I remember the difference between these two words that sound so similar and have such similar meanings? I'm going to think of something that happens continuously as being a state, something that is. And the O-U-S suffix is the key. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it means abounding in something, being full of something, or characterized by something. You can see it in other words that end with the O-U-S suffix that also describe a state or describe being full of something. Pompous, glamorous, courageous, dangerous, and hideous. All those O-U-S words describe the being of something. Someone is pompous. Someone is glamorous. Someone is courageous. An activity is dangerous. And a particular wallpaper is hideous. You can argue the nuances, but none of those are things that really change. They always are. Just like something continuous is always with you or always happening. So when I'm trying to remember the difference between continuous and continual... I'm going to think of a glamorous woman wearing an insulin pump to get her continuous supply of insulin. And I was inspired by Sierra Sanderson, Miss Idaho 2014, who made news by proudly and visibly wearing her insulin pump during the competition. Glamorous and continuous. 
Finally, I have a FamElect story from Alan. Hi, Mignon. Alan. I have a FamElect that's actually related to um, my job. There is this really annoying trend at work. People keep hijacking nouns and turning them into verbs and turning them into nouns. For instance, in the context of information systems implementations, often people will go down a rabbit hole trying to find the solution to a problem rather than simply documenting the problem itself so that we can solve the problem later on. And invariably, somebody will pipe up and say, now, now, come on, everyone, now it's not time to solution this. We just need to document the problem. And so they've used, they use the word solution as a verb. And I always just shake my head and think we already have a perfectly good a perfectly good verb for that. It's called solve. We can solve, we need to solution the problem. Well, the opposite also happens. People have been using the word solve as a noun where they say, oh, well, we have this problem and it's just, it's been really difficult to find the solve. And again, I think, why is this necessary? Why are we hijacking words and, and turning them in, into parts of speech were never meant to be. And of course, everybody does that with the word ask, right? They've turned the verb ask into a noun and say, oh, well, that's, that's, that's a pretty big ask. Um, so my coworker and I um, like to mock our coworkers. Of course, we do so lovingly, but nevertheless, we mock them um, by, by using our invented verb solutionize. I I'm really puzzled by this phenomenon, but I will continue to just grin and bear it. Thanks. I love the podcast. Thanks, Ellen. That is so funny. Turning nouns into verbs is a common way to get new words in English. For example, someone invented the microwave oven, and pretty soon we were talking about how great it is to be able to microwave dinner. But I don't think I've ever heard of people switching nouns and verbs like you describe. Using the noun solution as a verb and the verb solve as a noun. And I think your solve of creating a third word, solutionize, is great. Thanks for the message. Oh, and I did cover using ask as a verb about 18 months ago in the podcast. And you can find that segment by searching for the phrase big ask at quickanddirtytips.com or look for episode 632 wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you want to tell me the story of a word your family and only your family uses, or that you only use in your office, leave me a voicemail at 833214GIRL. And that number is also in my email newsletter, which you can sign up for at quickanddirtytips.com. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams. And that's all. Thanks for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.